Hey everybody, this is Ruben, and you're listening to Amazing Stories. Episode 5. The Hand of God. After his house vanished on Tory Island, Neville Presho had become obsessed. Year after year, an endless search for answers seemingly led nowhere. His health had suffered terribly. His marriage had collapsed. His career as a respected filmmaker was over. It was as though, from the moment his house vanished, Neville had begun to disappear himself. Now, finally, he had his day in court, facing the man he had accused of being responsible for the disappearance of his house, Tory Island Hotel owner Patrick Doohan. In the last days of the trial, a steady stream of witnesses took to the stand. The legal team for Patrick Doohan called a consultant psychiatrist to assess Neville Presho's mental health, but his testimony didn't go as the defence had planned. Well, I have to say, Mr Presho's description of the illness was brilliant, so clear. However, I do believe his illness might have been of a longer duration than he realises. An individual suffering from an illness like this isn't always aware of experiencing manic phases. And Mr Presho, as we've been told, was extremely creative, making films and the like. It's highly likely that he'd be able to utilise this excessive energy creatively for months before falling into a nosedive of depression. Can I ask, Dr McCaffrey, how do you feel the discovery that his house had been destroyed would have affected Mr. Presho? Well, I think this revelation would have been very damaging to Mr. Presho's mental health. It's not without significance that after the summer of 1994, he was unable to embark upon or successfully complete any projects or films. In my opinion, I'd be suspicious about his mental health from this point on. Both parties had expert evidence from psychiatrists. We had the clinical director of Letterkenny Psychiatric Unit. We gave very good evidence about what his findings were in relation to Neville. Neville's solicitor, Michael Gillespie. But that evidence was reinforced and, in fact, made more substantial by very clear evidence from the defendant's psychiatrist. In a sense, the defence psychiatrist was more helpful to Neville's case than to the defence. This was important because Neville's team wanted to show that Neville had been too unwell to instruct a solicitor after the disappearance of his house and therefore the statute of limitations on bringing a civil case should not apply. Whereas a central plank of the defence argument was that it should. Next... It would be the witness everyone was waiting to hear from, Patrick Doohan, the man Neville alleged had the most to gain from the disappearance of the house, would be the only islander to appear in court. When I think back now, I remember there was quite a large media presence. Journalist Enya Nivreslan. The television crews, the national media were there, RTE were there. There were an awful lot of print journalists and radio journalists there, so... There seemed to be an awful lot of interest in it, but it also seemed to be us as journalists, and especially the journalists who would maybe not be very familiar with Tory or with the Gaeltart or with the Irish language, looking in at this small community and this 
drama playing out in a small area on a much larger scale. It sort of felt like a lens was sort of being focused on this island. You know, a community is it is a community if they stand together and I suppose there was that sort of idea of maybe being peered at from the outside world. The people have come to Tory since the early 20th century to study the language, to study the music, to study the community, to study the people and they were being studied maybe with a harsher lens and people didn't really like that. In ways it was an enclosed community. Anton McCabe. People depended on one another and in a small, narrow community, even though there were there were tensions, the other side was that people couldn't afford to fall out. Like, by that stage, there was a social club on the island. One of the things that would always happen was that if men had a falling out and drink in the island, there was almost a custom where the day after, they would make a point of seeking one another out to make it clear that the dispute was over. Because in a small place like that, people couldn't afford to fall out. Now, though, Patrick Doohan was not on the island. This wasn't a dispute to be resolved with a handshake. No king of the island could mediate. He was in front of a judge. Early on, His defence team established he had not been on the island on the night of the fire. He had been on the mainland of Ireland with his wife. So, Mr Doohan, could you just confirm for the court exactly when you learnt about the fire? I can't be precise about the date. I just remember hearing that there'd been a fire in Neville's house. I wasn't one bit surprised, to be honest. When I got back out there, the house looked really bad. There was no wood left. It was completely burnt up. Only the stone parts were left. By the end of the summer, I was asking the county council to do something. I knew the house was going to collapse. It was beyond repair at that stage. The mothers and fathers were worried. It wasn't safe. There were children about. And what of Mr McGinty's allegation that you made him a financial offer to demolish the house in question? I made no such offer. There was no conversation along those lines. I was accustomed to doing a bit of work for the local council from time to time. When there was a dead whale or seal washed up, I'd bury it. It was the local council phoned me about the house. I'd said the road was completely blocked. Then a fax was sent to the island committee asking me to sort it out. It didn't matter how I felt about it. Good, bad or indifferent. I couldn't have tossed that house without being asked to did the job the same evening the facts came through. Patrick came to the stand and of course he had a comprehensive rebuttal to every allegation of Neville. His memory was highly detailed and then he turned to the judge with a dramatic new piece of evidence because he said he had just remembered a date that he had never remembered before. Now, let me see. It was the 19th of January, 1994. Yes, that would have been the day the house collapsed. There was nothing to it. It just collapsed on top of itself. It was ready to fall for a very long time. While I was clearing away the stones, the western gable fell. I was afraid it would fall in my boat. 
didn't take me much more than an hour to clear the stones from the road. The rubble from that house went all over the town. Patrick conjured up his fellow islanders as if they had been turned into a plague of locusts from the Old Testament. Every morning there was three tractors and a donkey cart taking away the stones. They got used in every sort of building work. Patrick was also asked about the 2001 agreement he had signed with Neville, agreeing to swap sites. Neville was sitting there in the bar, reading an English language book. He said he was intending to build a house across the way from me. You're from the island, would you be able to get me a site, he said. The next day he came in, looking really upset. He said he'd been up in the dune all night, lying there with no clothes on. He told me he'd been praying for me. Then he produced this document and told me to sign it. I never intended to fulfil that agreement. It just wasn't realistic. Mr Doohan, did you at one stage advise Mr Presho to find out who had burnt down his house? Yes, I did tell Neville that. Under cross-examination... Doohan was asked about his seemingly sudden recollection of the night of the 14th of January 1994 when he claimed that the house had suddenly collapsed. The gable walls fell down like dominoes. That was January 1994. Mr Doohan, if this had happened in one day, in one significant episode, wouldn't a person state this? Why was it not mentioned to the Guardi in your statement? I accept that I did not mention this to the Guardi. And is it your contention that you have no knowledge of the stones which were spread on Mr. Presho's site directly opposite your hotel? I don't know who spread the stones. Probably the people who were working in the quay. I didn't want to object to them doing it. I didn't own the land involved. And what of the rubble that was bulldozed onto the shore? I have absolutely no knowledge of that. I don't know who bulldozed those stones. No. When being cross-examined, Patrick very strongly denied trespass. And then Judge Murphy broke in on the questioning and started questioning Patrick himself. Mr Doohan, when exactly did the stones from Mr Pressure's house fall into the road? The same morning that I received the facts asking me to clear them. So you did move those stones? And where did you put them afterwards? I piled them up on the site. So you did go on to Mr Presho's site. Did you place the white stones there? Yes, but only at the request of Donegal County Council. Patrick admitted he had gone onto the site because he had cleared stones from the road onto it. Judge Murphy told him that that constituted trespass. The final day of the court case was expected to be straightforward. Both teams made their closing submissions. But things weren't quite over. There was to be a final moment of high drama. The court had risen for lunch, I think, or for a break. There was a a hotel and a cafe sort of across the road from the court. All the barristers, all the solicitors, court staff, journalists, everyone would go there. So you were sort of effectively lunching with the same people you'd sat in the court with. But all of a sudden it was like, right, everybody back to the court. Something's happening here. The exchange you're about to hear is how this really happened. Your Honour, may I address the court? (sighs) Mr Presho, it's not normal for a plaintiff to give submissions. 
I'm not normal, Your Honor. Does the defense have any objection? No, Your Honor. All right then, Mr. Presho. You may address the court, although this is highly unusual. We have had the divine hand of God in this court, and we've had the presence of the Heavenly Father and Jesus Christ, his Heavenly Son. In my 61 years of life, I've only heard from my Heavenly Father twice. The first time was in 1980 when I took my girlfriend for a walk in the Dublin mountains. The second was when I met a Satanist in New Zealand. He attacked me and I tried to exorcise him. I said, I bind Satan in the name of Jesus Christ and he left a free man. Your Honour, might I ask that we both read from the book of Isaiah in the King James translation of the Old Testament from the early 17th century? Mr O'Toole, for the defence. I have no objections, Your Honour, and if I may, it is perhaps apt to quote from Bishop Bedell's 17th century translation of Matthew chapter 6, verse 34 in the New Testament. Balor Alkan Shin, sufficient unto the day, is the evil thereof. Justice Murphy then read from the Bible in silence for a few minutes. That is, until he reached the last two verses, which he read aloud to the court. The wicked are like the troubled sea when it cannot rest, whose waters cast up mire and dirt. There is no peace, saith my God, to the wicked. Friday the 13th of March, 2009. One week after the High Court case closes. Neville makes headlines again for a very different reason. Good evening, officer. It's morning now. Are you aware that we've been following you for quite some time, trying to get you to pull over? I didn't notice. Are you aware that you were doing 200 kilometers per hour at one point? Really? Well, for half a bottle of wine and two cans of Heineken, that's not bad going, is it? Can I see your driver's license, sir? Excuse the photo, officer. It's not the best likeness, but you can probably still tell it's me. Sir, I'm going to have to ask you to step out of the car. Neville's next appearance in Letterkenny Courthouse is as a defendant. He was sentenced to two months in jail, reduced on condition that he be admitted to Letterkenny Psychiatric Hospital. And he was still recovering from his latest bout of illness when, seven weeks after the High Court case closed, Justice Murphy delivered his preliminary ruling. On the evidence before me, it appears that the plaintiff, Neville Presho, by reason of his mental illness, was incapable from the date of accrual of the cause of action until at least the date of instructing his solicitor of functioning to a degree which would enable him to protect his legal rights in relation to his property, as a reasonable man would do. Having heard the evidence and considered the submissions on the merits of the case,
the court is satisfied that Patrick Doohan has trespassed and continues to trespass on the plaintiff's property. The submissions in relation to delay have no bearing on this claim. Neville had won on the first major hurdle. The statute of limitations on bringing the case did not apply. Neville had been too unwell to instruct a solicitor and Patrick was found to have trespassed on Neville's property. When a second ruling was delivered on the 19th of July, Neville was once again too unwell to attend. Regarding the allegation that Patrick Doohan had offered John McGinty 1000 to demolish the house, Justice Murphy said that the court could not make a finding of fact in relation thereto. The court accepted that the site had been cleared by JCB and that Patrick Doohan was the only person on the island with a JCB. The court accepted that on the balance of probability, the fire was malicious. But no evidence was offered for the allegation that either the defendant or anyone acting for the defendant had set the fire and the court accepted that Patrick had not been on the island at the time. He said then that while it had not been proved that Patrick had destroyed the house... Anton McCabe. In the absence of other evidence, the court accepted Mr Preshaw's house would have impeded the view from the hotel. The court attaches particular importance to the photographic evidence of the uninterrupted view by the hotel of the harbour. The court is entitled to infer and is satisfied that it was probable that the defendant's JCB, that is Patrick's, whether driven by the defendant or not, was the only thing causing the injury. Justice Murphy said Patrick Doohan's assertion that the property simply collapsed, whether by stormy weather or by reason of unnamed persons removing the stones, lacks credibility. There was no evidence adduced to support the assertion that the building collapsed. We had evidence which it believed would entitle us to win the case, and that's what happened. We did win the case. Neville's solicitor, Michael Gillespie. Well, the judge ultimately found that the two defendants, Patrick Doohan and the company which owned the Tory Island Hotel, were both jointly and severally liable for Mr. Presho's losses. And that could only happen if they were involved in the destruction of the house and the removal of the house. Neville's team had to wait until November for the final judgment and decision on what damages would be awarded. This time, Neville was there to hear it. The benches were packed. Justice Murphy delivered the judgment quickly. He awarded Neville damages of €46,000. I can say that the lowest estimate Neville had received from a builder to rebuild his house was €344,000. Afterwards, Neville spoke to the press assembled outside on the High Court steps. Neville, Mr. Presho, Mr. Presho, Mr. Presho could I have a quick word? Absolutely. Fire away. How do you feel about the verdict, Mr. Presho? Oh, to be honest, I'm disappointed with the amount I've been awarded. That sort of money wouldn't even buy me a chicken coupon, Tory, these days. 
The destruction of that house has wrecked everything for me. I'm not exaggerating when I say it's ruined my life, destroyed my marriage, everything. But at the end of the day, I never wanted revenge. I just wanted justice. And I got it in court today. And how does it feel to finally have justice after all these years? Well, it has been a long, hard road, but to my knowledge, there's nobody connected to this affair that I haven't forgiven. I could meet any one of them now and shake their hand and give them a hug. For as it says in the Bible, judge not, and ye shall not be judged. Condemn not, and ye shall not be condemned. Forgive, and ye shall be forgiven. Well, there are a few things, I suppose, that really stood out for me during the case. Journalist Enyani Vreshlon. The evidence of Neville Presho himself, the Neville Presho as a person, he, he, he stood out. You could really see the effect this had had upon him and he had been a person who had had great success and, and fame and recognition in, in his work, but his, his life resembled the case in a way that the house had, had been crumbled and had disappeared and his fame and his career as well was seeming to go the same way. And he, he, I, I felt for him as, as a person, as a witness. Patrick's legal team immediately announced that they would appeal to the Supreme Court and this would drag on for years without actually reaching court until eventually Patrick submitted an affidavit in 2017. During the years following the court case, though I was advised that the judge had made significant errors, I still became very disillusioned. My business was neglected, and from 2010 onwards, the hotel only operated during the summer months, with no food served. This was due to lack of interest and the decision taken by the court. I couldn't get my head around the fact that anybody would take you to court just because they can smell money. I find it unjust and wrong. (laughs) And for the court to back them up without a shred of evidence and make us borrow more money just to push us over the edge, (laughs) that's nothing short of scandalous. But of course... You don't see any of that in the TV news or in the national papers. This case has cost me everything. The business was sold off just to pay the banks and make sure the plaintiff got his money. I'm now back working in the UK just to make a living. Unfortunately for me, I don't have the money to proceed with the case any further. We made attempts to contact Patrick Doohan whilst making this series, but he did not respond. The Tory Neville had fallen for in the 1970s is today a changed place. It has a new secondary school, a primary school, a health centre. High-speed broadband has transformed opportunities for the islanders and connected the island to the rest of the world as never before. A new high-speed ferry service is planned and the hotel, sold by Patrick Doohan, has a new owner. I'm sort of ambivalent about it. It doesn't hold the same draw as it did initially because of bad memories, you know? A few years after the case ended, Neville did make a final return trip to Tory. 
scattering on away. It's a lovely afternoon, isn't it? Have you visited Tory before? You could say that. I've been out to the island a fair few times. I'm not quite a local, but then again, you have to be born and bred on Tory if you don't want to be taken for a blow-in. You probably know that yourself. Are you running the hotel these days? A guilty as charged. I've been here a wee while now, trying to give the place a bit of a revamp. Uh, speaking of which, will you be dining with us today? Uh, we've got a wonderful new menu. I put it together myself. Thanks. Stunning, isn't it? Sorry? The view. Easily the best in the house. On a clear day, you can see for miles uninterrupted. To be honest, most of the tourists who stay with us rave about that beautiful view. I can definitely see the appeal. Imagine waking up to a view like that every morning. Just imagine it. Neville now lives in Hollywood, County Down, where he grew up, living in an apartment that once belonged to his aunt. Sadly, his illness continues to affect him. He has been hospitalised several times in the intervening years. In a strange twist, while we were making this series, Neville's solicitor received an unexpected offer from Tory Island. I can confirm that an approach has been made to negotiate a purchase of the site from him. I can't really say much more than that just now because it's an active matter. And um, I can understand that Neville might be willing to sell the site now. But, as Neville points out, if the sale does go ahead and anything is built on the site, it'll block the hotel's uninterrupted sea view. I have lived in important places, times when great events were decided. Who owned that half a rood of rock, a no-man's land, surrounded by our pitchfork-armed claims? I inclined to lose my faith in Ballyrush and Gorchin, till Homer's ghost came whispering to my mind. He said... I made the Iliad from such a local row. Gods make their own importance. The House That Vanished was written by Jan Carson and presented by Siobhan McSweeney. Neville was played by Tony Flynn, Patrick Doohan, Sean T. O'Malley, Fiona, Foe Cullen, John McGinty, Seamus O'Hara, Mary Meenan, council worker, Carol Moore, Patsy Dan and Justice Murphy, Mark Lambert, Father O'Neill and Garda Officer Nal Cusack, Woman in Social Club, Tourism Official, Reporter Megan Armitage, Man in Social Club and Engineer Desmond Eastwood, Man 2 in Club and Hotel Owner Lather Roddy, Defence Barrister Sean and Cameraman Michael Patrick, Prosecution Barrister Guard Fuelan Morgan, Psychiatrist and Michael Gillespie Patrick Fitzsimons, Anton and the Doctor Ian Beattie. Epic by Patrick Kavanagh is reprinted from Collected Poems edited by Antoinette Quinn. Ali Lane, 2004, by kind permission of the trustees of the estate of the late Catherine B. Kavanagh, 
through the Jonathan Williams Literary Agency. The series was produced by Conor McKay and Michael Shannon and is a BBC Northern Ireland production for BBC Radio 4. Thank you for listening, and don't forget to join us tomorrow for yet another amazing story.